whatever you think about whether degrowth sells as a concept or not, we have a problem as a society that where economic growth is is highly coupled to environmental impacts, and and we need to talk about that. Um, mm. And and so we'd say in our book, degrowth, when it comes down to it, is it's the politicization of uh, mat a material aspects of the economy. It's the politicization yeah. of the metabolism of society um, that is now a political issue and that's yep. what degrowth is trying to do thank you aaron for joining me today i'm joined by aaron vasinjan um, who's a current researcher and uh, is a fellow author of the uh, of the future is degrowth book alongside his co-authors and i'm really happy to be joined by him today to discuss his book and other topics related to degrowth we recently interviewed uh, timothy parik on our podcast to introduce us to the to the fundamentals of degrowth and now we're sort of looking to get more into the solution side and also just investigate a few other things so uh, Aaron, uh, thank you for for joining me thank you so much Xavier, for inviting me of course and to start off um i was I, when i first looked at your profile and was sort of coming across your book the first thing that stood out to me was that you uh, studied philosophy at university as an undergraduate um so i'm a i'm a, what you would call a closeted uh, uh a philosophy student i really want to study philosophy and that's sort of uh, my plan my next plan in terms of like postgraduate um and so I, I was all, I, I'm interested to see how your philosophy degree, how that background has helped you become more involved in your current research and how has it sort of guided your path to where you are today? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I went, I did my undergrad immediately in philosophy. That's what I wanted to do. I was really interested in like, especially kind of existential questions, um, finding meaning, understanding like uh how how we can find space in the world um mm. i i started taking a few environmental classes as well um uh, like environmental science and progressively i i you know i in philosophy um i leaned continental philosophy so mm. i studied a lot of um you know immanuel kant hegel uh, Nietzsche, uh, up to Heidegger mm. and, and then Hannah Arendt. Um, and increasingly, I think I studied, um, I became more interested in political economy and kind of mm. like what I thought of as the time, the real world. <laughs> and there was like a moment yeah. where I was taking a class. It was like a, you know, a, a, a graduate, a graduate seminar, um, called mm. the foundations of philosophy. Um, mm. and we didn't, um, the, the professor was kind of this, this very old guy who was, uh, you know, very specialized in, in certain kinds of like traditional philosophy. Mm. And at the beginning of the course, he said, okay, so what are the kinds of philosophy that exist? And, you know, we started saying things like, well, okay, philosophy of science, yes. Um, and then someone brought up uh, feminist philosophy, and he he said, mm, I wouldn't say that's a philosophy. Um, mm. And uh, someone else brought up uh, 
philosophy of race and he said no i don't i don't think that would be considered <laughs> uh, two strikes <laughs> yeah and then and that that for me that was like well that's it i i um i've seen what this is about i'm really interested in it i continue mm. to be and i continue to mm. read philosophy um and i'm i'm really still interested in those questions but um right now i I want to go and do real mm. stuff and the environment mm. crisis um, really, mm. you know, was what took me. And uh, I went on to study a master's of science in natural resource sciences. Um, mm. So yeah, th that's kind of like my early, early background um, and, and what got me here. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it sounds like, in a sense, I'm sort of following a path perhaps that you followed, but just a, a few years earlier. Because I'm, uh, in terms of context, I study business, so it's pretty, uh, pretty, or I guess, uh, uh, disconnected from uh, uh, philosophy in pretty large ways, methodolo methodologically as well as just in general. And then also, um, uh, and then also, uh, uh, philosophy itself um, is uh, for me. Uh, it seems like a passion, whereas, for, you know, for, for business, it's not so much that case, but um, I've been sort of contemplating, you know, those sort of directions. And uh, I, I recently took an environmental class and I think I've had those sort of similar epiphanies where, you know, you can sort of see tangible, the tangible impacts that, you know, the, the subjects can have relative to maybe subjects where you're sort of in an ivory tower or subjects where um, the people in those fields like philosophy may be out of touch or, you know, you have that sort of sense of disenchantment. That's what I sort of gathered from, you know, what you were saying, right? Um, and so you went from doing environmental science and um, it takes you to where you are today. And so, you know, what is your, what do you, where are you at the moment? What are you doing? And how did you arrive at uh, writing, uh, helping write, you know, the future is degrowth? Yeah. So um, I, I moved with, after my master's degree, I moved with my partner uh, to Barcelona. Um, they were studying, a, a, doing a master's there. Um, mm. And that was kind of um, degrowth HQ. Um, mm. So I, I started going to these reading groups with the degrowth group there, um, learning about it. Um, started writing about it too. Um, mm. as I, as, as I was, um, kind of, yeah, uh, kind of finding my way and, um, I was applying to PhD programs at the time. Um, and, uh, that's, that's how I, I started getting into degrowth. Um, and shortly it, like I was basically, my my PhD wasn't really anything to do with it. I I, I it was um, kind of urban political ecology. I was studying um, like gentrification basically, mm -hmm. um, but from an environmental perspective. And uh, then I um, kept kept kind of working on degrowth stuff. Started writing about it, and I think that's how Matthias and Andrea. Um, came across my work. They had read some of my articles and they reached out to me to ask if I, if I wanted to um, work with them on, on mm, the English. Headhunted. Of the book. 
I guess, uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I didn't actually know them before. I had talked to an mm. one once before that, um, but when they emailed me, I, I was extremely um, pleased and excited um, to be working mm. with them. Um, basically, throughout my whole PhD, I had to um, support myself, um, and I did freelance editing, um, mm. like proofreading scientific articles, basically. Um, so it was all kind of in my wheelhouse, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I I felt really glad to be able to take part in in this book. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, now I guess to dive into the the meat of the of the the sandwich, so to speak, or if you're vegetarian or falafel or whatever, which I am. So, um, so when we interviewed Tim- Timothy Parrick, um, who was excellent in sort of introducing all the key concepts, the fundamental underlying philosophies of degrowth and all those sorts of things. Um, uh, a lot of the questions that we got after the fact, we're still like asking clarifying questions about degrowth. And I think that's quite a common response even for me when I read um, Jason Hickel's book, which is where I first got introduced to the top concept. Um, and I was sort of really excited and like, guys, we're going to save the world. And I was like, they were like, what is degrowth? I'm like, oh, I think it's this. And I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. So, you know, it's a broad concept and it sort of talks about many, many things. Um, and so I think it would be helpful instead of asking not what degrowth is, but what degrowth isn't. Uh, and then, you know, viewers can choose to... Um, look at our previous video to see Tim's definition. And if you like, I invite you to give your own definition, but yeah, what, what is degrowth not? Yeah. So it, just to recap, um, the way we define degrowth in the book is, is, is the argument that, um, we can, um, achieve well-being, um, but, uh, for, uh, for everybody, um, we can have an economy that achieves well-being, um, but that does not necessarily rely on economic growth, uh, meaning GDP, um, having to increase. While at the same time, we do have to scale down in in the immediate term, um, kind of the amount of material and energy that we use in the economy. Um, so that's kind of the basic argument. Um, and uh, then with a word like degrowth, which is also from the very beginning, uh, a kind of, uh, it, it was in, uh, coined as, as a confrontational term, as a, as a term that would rile people up, that kind of um, was intended to really, um, you know, be a bit of a troll word. word. Um, mm. <laughs> And um, so it, there's a lot of misconceptions about it. The, the first one is, um, you know, that you see a lot is, oh, degrowth is Malthusian, that it's it's all about, um, you know, that poor people can't um, have things and that um, we need to, um, you know, uh, in order for the economy to do well, we have to deny people, poor people things, because they'll just consume things. Um, Mm. And uh, that's just not at all what it is. Um, Especially, you know, it's, it centers um, economic and social justice. It 
in its very thing when it was first uh, the first degrowth conference was called um uh sustainable degrowth uh for economic and social justice or something like yeah. that um like it that's just immediately not what it is it's not an mm -hmm. argument for population against population growth it's there isn't an argument that we have too many people and we need to degrow um how many mm -hmm. people there are um it's not an argument that um we should uh deny um people uh the essential things in life and more um so it's not an argument for austerity either mm. um and particularly as we say in the book um austerity is always justified for the sake of growth like they we're always told that we have to cut back um, on public services because we need to grow. Um, and that's always the justification. Like, so it, it's kind of strange when people say, mm. oh, degrowth is austerity because that's, it's like, no, it's actually the opposite of austerity. We should provide public services for everybody without having an economy that depends on growth and it depends on the kind of cycle of, of boom and destruction that a growth mm. economy depends on. Mm. So yeah. those are a few things of what it is not. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just on your point of austerity, I mean, I think when it stops becoming growth dependent and it's just a matter of reducing industries that are not uh, of service to people's well-being, it, I guess the word becomes a different, it, the word changes. It doesn't become austerity, it becomes something else. So I guess that's a reduction or, you know, whatever that may be. And I think a common misconception I've seen is that, um, uh, is that, uh, you know, we're just going to, the econ when you're degrowing, you're degrowing every part of the economy to meet the, to be within the environmental bounds of the planet, which is not, not the case, at least in Jason Hickel's book where he says, you know, degrowing is about, uh, being cognizant of our fundamentals in terms of what is a good society and then essentially choosing which industries we want to keep or we want to grow and then selecting those that are not, uh, I guess, positively contributing to social justice, to our well-being, and all those sorts of things. Um, and I thought what was really interesting is, you know, his comment, which I think is pretty intuitive about how he looks at like Gini coefficients. He looks at, um, uh, you know, the amount of doctors per hospital or, you know, uh, all those sorts of things. Uh, within different countries like Costa Rica, Japan, uh, and then you look compares those those figures, those metrics that sort of are a, a sort of a proxy of you know well being, compares that to GDP per capita of like the United States, and the United States is like you know a much larger GDP per capita compared to like Cuba, for example, but their medical system is sort of. Uh, through those metrics is actually performing better or is giving better services. And that's sort of just like, at least for me was a super intuitive way of understanding, you know, if you prioritize certain things in an economy or, pro or uh, oriented around a specific purpose, um, you're going to deliver results for that, whatever that purpose may be, whether that's, a, whether that's health, well-being, et cetera. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to add to, to that. Absolutely. And, and the fact that, um, our economies are prioritizing GDP, it's like, you know, you kind of become, you study for the exam, right. And if you study for the exam, you're only going to know 
or do the things that are in the exam, um, you, you, you become what you measure. So GDP doesn't actually say anything about well-being. Um, mm. there, there are some correlations, but up to a certain point, um, things can start going down. There's, there's just no reason why we should prioritize GDP except for if you um, think that um, you know the wealthy deserve more wealth mm. and are better at um, in, you know better at steering the economy than than a democratic economy would would be. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, so the absolutely. only justification for GDP is it's literally a um, it's it's a justification for the status quo and and for the elite um, class mm. to keep doing what they're doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, what I found interesting about, uh, your book is that you were talking about in the first few chapters, how new of a concept GDP is and how new of a fundamental growth has become within, uh, I guess, capitalism. I don't know if we would consider cap growth as a fundamental part, perhaps you can enlighten us, but, um, yeah. How new is the concept of GDP and of growth, particularly and how have those sort of been entrenched in, new ideas of capitalism yeah so it, it, it's it, it was really incredible to work with um matthias because he his his research he's an economic historian and his research is basically how did this idea of economic growth come about and it's it's surprisingly recent um even the idea of the economy People didn't say the economy is doing this, is doing that before the 1940s. Mm. Um, and that was a very particular time. You know, World War II um, uh, was over, um, the mid-40s, and then the next uh, danger became communism. Mm. Um, so you had a massive, the war was over, you had massive uh, labor movements in the United States. Um, and you had this need to basically um, either appease them or, or try to change the conversation. So uh, while before people measured the health of, of, of how economic activity was happening, maybe by unemployment, um, the what was then gross national product became gross domestic project product was uh, became used. Um, and the people who invented it later said, or said at the time, like this should not be used as a measure mm. to run yeah. an economy. It's just an indicator of something very specific. Um, and that's when economic growth started being used. So economic growth became a tool to compare capitalist economies to communist economies. It, it became mm. this kind of like, um, a, a way to say we're doing really well and they're yeah. doing really badly. They're not being as productive. Um, and as a result, the you had this kind of um, uh, race to growth um, where then communist countries also started um, kind of measuring uh, mm. and, 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 and also following this kind of growth ideology that was being um, created. But explicitly, yeah. it first really started in the United States um, and in post, um, post-war Europe um, as, as a way to say to the working class, 
we can't give you the things that you're demanding. We have to grow as, as a economy first, the economy right. first has to grow. So it was a way to really kind of delay all of these demands that people had and to scare, uh, to really create a, um, Mm. very strong um sense that capitalism is is the is the better ideology and the better econ right. economic structure um now we can argue if 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 communism really was that successful in many many cases it was like the example of cuba cuba that you raised um but we have to understand that growth is extremely new as an ideology um and what we argue is that, you know, even if capitalism is, um, you know, precedes growth as an ideology, it's still really important. If the if the main tools that uh, capitalism is using right now to kind of um, to to maintain the status quo is 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 this ideology of growth. It's one of its main tools. Then you actually have to address it. If you don't address it. Mm -hmm you're not going to be able to overcome it. You have to name it. Um, mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that came to mind when you're sort of giving the explanation is, um, is, uh, what conversations would have been like between everyday people between the, uh, the, uh, uh, the professional class, the working class of the, of the day, you know, before the invention of GDP. So I think, you know, now, uh, a lot of the a lot of universities at center our, uh, our understanding of what a good society is around economics around gdp growth around those sorts of things and that sort of then bleeds out into um into society where you know our, no, our news focuses on are we going to are we going to be in a period of boom or bust is it going to be a recession or is it not and uh, our sort of conversations about society have been uh have been, I guess, uh, occupied by the sort of this economic sort of uh, discussion of of uh, of uh, business cycles, essentially. Um, and I imagine before that, and this is purely speculative, but I imagine conversations would have been centered around things that people intuitively intuitively think are important, such as you know, how is the neighbors doing? How is uh, how is our local community doing? Are we getting the services that we need? Are we uh, uh, you know, do we have enough money to sort of support ourselves as a community? Um, all those sort of questions. Like, I, I don't think a community actively thinks, you know, is the national growth going up or down? You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, it's just interesting to see how, um, and this is going to be a value judgment, but how conversations have sort of devolved into as Michael Sandel says, professor at Harvard University, he says, conversations of civil discourse have sort of been dissolved to the realms of technocratic speak. It's all technical economic language that doesn't appeal yeah. or resonate with 90% of people. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because what you're saying is, because that's still the case. People mm. don't identify with economic growth language. Mm. Um, and what's interesting is that actually degrowth for that very same reason sometimes appears quite distant to people because it's like you live in a, a town or a city, like what does degrowth mean? Like what does it mm. mean to reduce the overall material and energy use of your society? Like it's a very distant idea. Mm. Like what does it mean for me before a society <laughs> to no longer rely on GDP? So it is, I mm. think it is a bit um, distant 
for people. Um, yeah. But th- nevertheless, I, I think it that doesn't mean it's not important because mm, um, mm. the main thing that degrowth is trying to do is to uh, dismantle and deconstruct um, and frontally attack um, r- really the the that technocratic um, mm. discourse of how to run a society um mm-hmm. and you know i i think it's no accident that in since since degrowth uh, since growth really became a hegemonic um way of talking about the world um increasingly people felt more and more distant from from politics mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely um and i mean not only distant from politics but even just engaging in uh, even like the things that we would do historically weekly basis work even people are disengaged from work i mean in australia i saw a recent stat uh, i think australians are probably the the most disengaged workforce in the entire world which is uh, quite funny um but it's not sort of uh isolated to australia that effect is even globally but just to come back very quickly to um to this idea i mean in the 40s and 50s as these ideas of growth gdp was sort of started to pollinate the uh, public discourse um at least there was like community right at least people had those sort of t- communi- communal ties where whether that was to their religious leaders of the town or whether that was to their workplace or whether that was to um i guess third spaces which i don't know if you're familiar with the term but um those sorts of they had those ties. Whereas now in the age of, I guess, social media technology, those ties are pretty much severed in a pretty, a pretty severe way. And so even if we did want to talk about these sort of meaningful things like community, well-being, um, you know, taking care of those that are less fortunate, I, I it, it seems as that if we lack a community, we have less of an interest to invest in those things. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if if you would agree, but that certainly feels true to me that um for all in our own boxes and our own mini silos, and then our sub silos within the internet, um why would we care about the general population? We only have to care mm-hmm. for ourselves, right? So it seems like yeah. a sort of weird, uh, uh, I wouldn't say weird, but um this sort of uh, complicated situation, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I guess. I have a few thoughts about that. Um, the first is like, a, uh, you know, I first started getting interested in, in degrowth and I, you know, I had to post things about it. Um, and a friend of mine, um, Catherine, she, she, she contacted me and she said, Aaron, degrowth, so fascinating to me. I, this feels really close to me right now. Can we meet up and talk about it? Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. Um, let's talk. And when we met i was she was like so tell me about degrowth and i said well you know it's like uh we need to reduce the total throughput of energy and material uh, like, <laughs> you know, gdp blah, blah, blah. and she she was like no like what's so incredible to me is like i am constantly stressed i don't feel like i have like control over my own life like i feel like the things i want to do i can't get like i'm not um i'm just over extending myself constantly um and you know basically describing alienation um under Mm -hmm. under capitalism um and and the word degrowth just what she's like when i heard it 
it clicked. Like, this is what I need. This is, I need to be able mm -hmm. to um, fulfill myself as a person and not worry about being productive all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, at that moment, I was like, okay, I've been uh, thinking about this in a very academic way. Um, but the fact is, and I think truly why degrowth is starting to appear appeal to a lot of people um, is, is because um, increasingly we feel completely, you know, completely alienated, completely separated from the world that we live in. Um, there's a big mm. gap and a big lack in, 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 you know, feeling separated from work. It's totally meaningless feeling separated from home life, um, completely separated from, uh, communities around us and a lack of, a lack of meaning. Um, Mm. And I, that goes back. That goes back all the way um, to the start when capitalism started, you know, really embedding itself in life. Like um, Marx famously said, "Everything is solid melts into air." Like wh what he meant by that is all the community that we have, all these social um, ties, mm. just are constantly being ripped up by capitalism, and. Um, and that that's only to that's just getting worse and worse and worse like only 50 years ago you had really strong working class communities where where people could depend on each other you drop your kids off let's say you're trying to mm -hmm. fight for a raise um people can can meet up in in uh, as you call third spaces bars um they work together cook for each other um and and all of that is just being completely ripped apart. And mm. it, I, personally, I think it's one of the most important and terrible things that's happening. Um, the results of which are, um, you know, not mm. not fully being grappled with. Like it, we can clearly measure that the amount of loneliness. Like there's a lot of research. Mm that measures loneliness in society. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a complete crisis more than it has ever been. Um, yeah. the it's very opioids, bad in Australia. Just, yeah. 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 Um, people, the people's reliance on, on opioids, um, you know, to, to treat pain and depression, um, the, the health that, that health issues that, um, mm. loneliness and alienation leads to, um, the kinds of spaces that we live in, um, mm. extremely, extremely um, distant spaces. And then I think psychologically, you saw this during the pandemic, the kind of mm. loneliness that sends people into complete pits of paranoia and, and separation mm. from a sense of reality. Um, mm. Like, I mean, this is me going on a first yeah, sure, sure. Uh, topic but <laughs> yeah. I, I i think it it all connects because we're all um being told that we need to be productive um beings mm. um and mm. i think degrowth is, is a really important set of ideas that can start the conversation about that um can start yeah. the conversation yeah. about is this really what we want is this really allowing to live allowing us to live meaningful lives mm. um and to me, that connects to everybody. Everybody mm. um, connects with yeah. that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I know in Australia, I, uh, uh, mental health or I guess uh, well-being for me is a, a sort of um, 
a very uh, important sort of fundamental uh, uh, that I sort of have been researching a little bit on, not too much, but just enough to know that uh, mental health is getting particularly worse in Australia, at least. Um, I think I saw a, a research article recently that uh, in Australia, like the number of suicides has actually gone up since the pandemic. So it's increased. Um, loneliness is most prevalent amongst 18 to 24 year olds. This is like generally speaking in society, oh, wow. we see as the most social group, yeah. right? And yet yeah. they're the ones that are most impacted. And that's not only reserved for, for young people like myself It's and uh, yourself. It's, you know, it's for older people as well. Um, <laughs> you know, it's known as the silent killer. And there's many other, you know, problems. And um, what I'd be cautious, though, is attributing, attribute, attribute, oh God, that's a tricky word, attributing them all to capitalism. And I'd be curious to know in terms of if I was to play devil's advocate, right, um, you know, there's many good things that capitalism has brought us, you know, I guess the the general idea of prosperity, of raising inequality, uh, reducing inequality, or <laughs> raising inequality as well, um, um, all those sorts of things, you know, how much would you attribute, attribute the bad that we're talking about in terms of loneliness, separation, all those sorts of things, as well as ecological uh, separation and damage how much would you attribute that, that to capitalism and what about the good things that it does and why do we need to go beyond capitalism mm. so yeah uh, i mean we, we can we can go back um to to marx um here like uh he, you know he he you could say that marx was an admirer of capitalism at least in in a lot of his earlier work um, he he really said, you know, capitalism is what um, has has um, let loose human productivity in in mm. a really big way, and um, has has allowed things to be uh, society to to really it, it's changed the face of the world um, and allowed for like a worldwide culture to emerge of. Um, mm. Uh, which has involved like um you know very very incredible transformations like technological and and social transformations um and i i, I think that definitely needs to be um understood um but at the same time um what what has to be said is that the the gains that capitalism has given us and given us are gains that have been fought often despite capitalism um so so protection uh employment protections healthcare universal healthcare um th those are things that people have social movements have demanded um and that they have fought for tooth and nail um e gender equality um those those have been hugely um, massive social um, movements that that have made that happen within capitalism, um, and often despite despite of capitalism and the way it works. Um, re regarding loneliness, I think, yeah, like I guess you could 
like it's always like could you see a capitalist economy solve that problem um well like i think right now one of the main drivers of loneliness is 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 kind of how we design or don't design space as as a society like infrastructure um we all live very far away from each other, use cars, um, don't engage in public life in any meaningful way. Um, any kinds of spaces that do allow for public life um, are, you know, don't make money, so they they fail. Um, because to support public life, you you need to basically make it a a a, a service. It's not something that. Um, that uh can really fit in a purely market economy um but yeah i i think uh i think we have to really acknowledge that um yes there have been massive transformations um but that doesn't that um can't mean um a justification for the status quo actually it should highlight that um Actually, there there is a possibility for fighting and and a necessity for changing the status quo through struggle, um, because otherwise it's 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 not going to be given to us, um, and it never has been. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, absolutely. I, just to, uh, uh, I mean, when I sort of try and define capitalism and think about its impacts, all those sorts of things, the first thing I struggle with is actually understanding how, how big the tentacles are in terms of how far and how entrenched it is in everyday life. And it's hard to quantify. And for that reason, I also find that uh, it is also difficult to measure its impacts in terms of, of those non-monetary impacts, like, you know, loneliness, um, impacting well-being, you know, disengagement work, all those sorts of things. And I, I sort of compare it to like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein um, in the sense that we've created this technology in a sense, this economic sort of ideal ide ideology where um, it was created for a specific purpose that now it's sort of lost control. Um, uh, maybe it is in control, but I sort of see it as like, this thing that's sort of evolving itself, like it just constantly changes and shapes. Um, and I remember an economics professor at university sort of said something along those lines that, uh, you know, we, we won't be able to stop it, which was pretty ominous, but I, I sort of disagree. I think that's a bit silly, but um, nevertheless, you know, it, the tentacles are pretty big. It's a pretty big, um, but now coming to solutions. So, you know, we talked about, you know, some of the fundamentals what Tim Perrick has said before. Um, but I think a lot of our listeners would be curious to know, you know, what what are what can degrowth do? What how can we sort of implement degrowth? And so I'd be curious, you know, you know, how do you see degrowth being implemented in practice at a policy level? Um and uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean it, I, I guess this is the part where I get all like policy geek. Um, mm. <laughs> but I, I, I don't, I, like, I want to kind of contextualize that, that like, I don't think, um, it, it, it doesn't need to feel distant. Like, you know, policy mm. often feels like this thing that we just rely again on these technocrats to make changes for us and it'll, it'll solve the problems we have. Mm. Um, mm. and I think in the book we try to, 
really point out how th those kinds of policy changes can be something that you anyone can um, can fight for um, and you know it starts by looking around and, and seeing what's going on and where you live mm -hmm. um, so like I, I like to, I live in Montreal in Canada and there there's quite a few things I can point to that are actually pretty cool about about how things work here so, so for example um, in the summer there's uh, free public swimming pools in every neighborhood. And mm. um, they're, they're actually seen as a health service because in during heat waves, they, they keep them open until 10 p.m. because mm. you just get too hot. Um, and this is mm. like the best, cheapest way to uh, avoid like heat deaths. Um, mm. And everyone's there. Um, and then uh, especially in poor communities. Um, mm. So... That's one thing. Um, we also have um, what, what what are called childcare collectives. So where people can um, kind of get training and then start their own childcare. Mm. Um, they're, they're, um, um, and, and then they are registered in like a, a childcare registry and um, they mm. get paid by the state. So every childcare can do kind of like have their own policies and they are, um, you know, um, uh, checked up quite uh, intensely um, just to make mm -hmm. sure that everyone follows like all the right precautions. Um, but basically childcare is a, is a right and, and you get mm. almost free access to it as a parent. Um, mm. And in every neighborhood we have community clinics of, you know, some way they're kind of awful and highly bureaucratic, but um, also they're available to everybody um, and, um, public transit. And then you look at what people are actually fighting for, um, in Montreal is, um, right now we have social movements fighting for a free, free public transit and they're connecting climate change with the need to have free public transit. Mm. Um, and to me, that's kind of like, you know, we see like Greta Thunberg and she's doing incredible stuff, making the headlines. Um, but people often see policy as like quite disconnected um, or like their personal mm. lives as kind of disconnected from the climate fight. But there's mm. stuff we can do in, in our neighborhood, in our cities that kind of make, make uh, degrowth more real. So what I just mm. said is like what, what we argue for is, is a kind of policy package um, that transforms the economy towards a more care-based care economy. So where mm. care work is actually valued, like childcare, mm. um, a democratic economy where people get to make decisions about things in their everyday life. So, for example, um, this is happening around the world where municipalities are deprivatizing, um, like the energy sector, yep. and what's called municipalizing them. They're they're putting it in public ownership with public mm -hmm. oversight. And that avoids things like, you know, peak pricing where during a heat wave or, um, or whatever, where yeah. pe people are, have to spend huge amounts of money to maintain mm. their electricity. Um, yeah. So the, the, there are all kinds of things that um, mm. are, are really possible and are really easy for us to fight for. 
Um, and then we kind of put it under a name of um, uh, what we call uh, public abundance. So right mm -hmm. now, it's, we live in a society that prioritizes private abundance. It's, it's where mm -hmm. if you have money, you can kind of do what you want. If mm -hmm. you have money, you can also make more money. Um, you can get more loans easier. But public abundance is about um, we can actually uh, restructure a society where we mm -hmm. can all have access to the basic things that we need and more. Leisure space, like public pools, um, parks, and that would cost a lot less for society, and it would be um, more environmentally friendly. So, mm. um, so that's yeah, kind of absolutely. like a broad, broad way that we describe uh, what policies could look like. Another one that is kind of related is this concept of universal basic services. So mm. you might have heard of universal basic income, mm. which is like where everyone gets access to a monthly um, monthly income so that no one is left behind and no one's forced to do work that um, basically, uh, you know, so that they can never actually advance. They're always just stuck doing mm. the bottom work. Um, but bas universal basic services is kind of similar, but it's, it's where, let's say you do get universal basic income, but everything is too expensive. You have to pay um, health insurance. You have to pay um, for a car, gas, uh, mm. you have to pay for childcare. Um, so universal basic services where those things are accessible for everybody. Mm. Right. Yeah. And having like those essential services, which are probably dictated by, you know, some sort of a basket of, of uh, goods whereby, you know, group of, you know, a representative sample would say, you know, these are the things that are most important and then making it so that it's free for those people, if I'm understanding you correctly, in terms of those basic services. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I think in terms of those communal, those communal uh, uh, activities, like I think you referred in the books, uh, commoning certain areas of society to sort of, you know, improve health, improve, you know, uh, commun community connection, and then just also providing those universal basic services to people. Um, and these are all very important things. And and yet my criticism, my my critique here is, I, I want to piggyback off Matt Huber. It's actually Matt Huber's um, critique, Professor Matt Huber from Syracuse University, uh, for example, putting a carbon tax. So Matt Huber makes the point that, you know, for the professional class, these ideas of uh, reducing pollution um, and the need and the importance of it is very, very clear, especially... Um, especially because there are usually people in the professional class usually have enough or are, are much well off compared to the average working class person. Whereas a working class person, you know, if they're having to pay, if they're struggling to pay rent, you know, uh, energy bills, all those things, et cetera, it, to them, the benefit is not very clear. In fact, it's just a cost to them, an additional cost, which they're, you know, if so, for someone well off that induces much more stress and anyways this is a long way of saying do you think these sort of uh these things are appealing to the working class um i would say maybe energy absolutely like making it a public service and actually in victoria 
you'd be happy to hear one of the states in Australia in a recent election, they've sort of won on the promise of making electricity public again, which is great. Um, but, uh, you know, do you see a lot of the degrowth sort of ideas of, you know, voluntary simplicity, you know, making a simple life, less is more. Do you actually think this appeals to working class people, which can be in sometimes very big parts of the population? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, Matt Huber has, um, and I have like engaged quite a few times on this. And um, mm. I, I think it's interesting when someone starts from the perspective of, from the argument that uh, they have access to what they know that a certain class wants or needs um, mm. where uh, I, that's uh, first of all, like historically, it's just the case that working class communities have always fought for, you know, what a Marxist would call social reproduction. So um, when, when in, you know, the Fordist economy, when men were striking at the factory, it, it was women who were organizing childcare um, mm. and women who were fighting for safe streets and for, um, you know, uh, decontaminating their, their uh, neighborhoods. Um, mm. So working class communities have have an environmentalism um, and have always um, engaged with with the things that I was talking about. So if you look at a city like like Vienna, um, mm. there was a period called Red Vienna where um, basically a, a communist uh, government came into power and um, you know they made housing public. They turned it into public housing and cooperatives. Um, made sure that all these cooperatives had essential services um, that that people could use and share, like laundry rooms, um, mm. and and provided public transport for for the whole city that was accessible and maintained that. And Vienna still has that, and it's mm. it's one of the best places to live in the world, uh, cheap one of the cheapest housing available in the world, um, mm. and. These are all things that that um, working class people have fought for and will continue to fight for. If you look at the working class movements that are the strongest in in the United States, um, you know we've started seeing some successes in in the service industry, but really um, the working class movements that have been making the biggest gains is uh, teachers and healthcare workers. So those are people who. Um, are in the care economy and uh, degrowth is about expanding the care economy and mm. about expanding those services that provide um, the things that we need to be able to have our daily life. And people intuitively mm. see um, that that's, uh, that that's uh, desirable and necessary. That's what people mm. have always fought for. Um, mm. However, that said, I do think that there is a part of the degrowth movement that does lean towards, um, you know, this kind of simpler way, uh, uh, kind of lifestyle, um, uh, uh, lifestyle uh, reduction, minimalism, or whatever, um, and even in the and then in the word itself, people people often quickly kind of jump to the idea that degrowth is about um, wanting less for everybody. Um, I, I think that's uh, 
that is uh I, I think it's true that there are like different aspects of the degrowth community, but that's that's why you have uh, these kinds of debates. That that's in our book, and in basically every other um, prominent uh, degrowth um, proponent are, is pushing against that. Um, mm. Where it's like, no, we need to have a idea of degrowth that is for everybody that isn't just about um voluntary simplicity by mm. specific um small communities um mm -hmm. and um yeah so that would be kind of um, yeah yeah absolutely our response to matt huber's argument yeah so if if i i just want to see if i understand you correctly aaron so essentially to the idea to to the argument that matt puts forward of you know um does it appeal to the working class? You, your argument is essentially that, well, yes. And in fact, the working class have a history of successfully fighting for services like, you know, uh, healthcare, better pay, and especially environmentalism. And so to say that they don't care is um, a reduction of, of history, essentially, that's not necessarily the case. Um, but you also do concede the point that maybe there are degrowthers de in the community that focus too much on the consumer side of things. And Absolutely, yeah. too much on voluntary simplicity, you know, living in the cave and all this. I mean, I'm, it's a caricature, but you know what I mean? Like these sort of ideas of s simple living. Uh, um, yeah. Absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, we, we can kind of get um, kind of deep into this, but I, I think it's important not to kind of assume uh, some kind of uh, privileged understanding of of what the working class wants and needs because the mm. working class is is a product of history um and, and as are we all um it, it's something and the working class is something that uh manifests itself it's it's it's, it's yeah. like you you become a a class as you organize as you mm. organize society in a certain way um and the point is not to say people people won't want this because um, they expect you know uh, they expect to be able to get yachts and Ferraris and yeah. suburban homes. Um, so you have to give them that. Um, the point is to say no. We are here to uh, transform our understanding and our desire for the status quo. We can actually change things. Um, for the better and change what kinds of desires we have. And those have changed mm. throughout history. Um, and the point of uh, struggling for progress is to actually say like, no, those are not immutable desires. We can change them as a society. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I guess to, 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 to dive down this, this sort of um, this a little bit more, so I think there's, like you've said, there's an agreement that degrowth as a movement needs to encompass much more, uh, it needs to, needs to appeal to much more people and, um, maybe certain, certain arguments of, you know, voluntary simplicity as well-meaning as they are. And also, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of value in that, you know, anti-consumerist thought that is focusing on what it's truly important. And when you focus on not what you have, 
uh, and you start really thinking about what's important to you, I think that's an incredibly valuable question. And that's one up for me that's been very valuable. Um, but nevertheless, um, when framing it from the perspective of a working class people, as Matt, Matt Huber says, you know, we need to find things that we can add for them in terms of what value can we create for working class people or just people in general that are sort of opposed to degrowth. You know, what are, what are some more uh, policy ideas uh, or policy perspectives from the degrowth movement that you think can actually encompass and be accepted very widely amongst people um, in a way that also is uh, challenging or uh, combating, I should say, e- ecological the ecological crisis? Yeah, um, so I, I think um, it, the the term that we use um, in the book is it's called uh, non-reformist reforms, and this is borrowed from uh, French philosopher André Gortz, where he said, um, you know, there's kinds of reforms that you can do mm. that, you know, we use the word uh, that's just reformist. It's not going to change things, yeah. but it's, you know, these reforms open the way for uh, kind of way grander way more transformative mm. change um uh and so so one one of them um i would i would say is is um some something like uh, a, a care economy um this is kind of the the number one thing that um mm that people are are fighting for after mm. the pandemic that people want is is healthcare that is just mm. and that's um not alienating and and that's not uh won't make you poor <laughs> if you're doing it um, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, if if you if you make use of it so that's that's one thing mm-hmm. um people people are going to see increasingly that we have an increasingly aging society we need an economy where um, much more of the economy of, of jobs are are oriented towards taking care of the elderly and taking care of the young because um, people increasingly like I'm I'm 32. Um, so many people I know just can't afford to have kids because it's it's just too too expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we need to be able to transform the economy towards a care economy. And, and that's, I, I think that is a, a winning ticket, <laughs> uh, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, it's, it's people are realizing after the pandemic, how hugely central it is um, mm. and all around the world. Um, you know, a, a society like Japan, this is its primary, like uh, mm. primary uh, political question right now is, is how can we have a society that, um, isn't growing, uh, both in population terms, but also in economic terms, and still provides well-being for everybody and takes mm. care of of the elderly. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, so if I was to summarize, so the care economy is essentially maybe two things. One is uh, making healthcare a fundamental basic service, to use your language, and making it maybe free. I'm not too sure what you think, but uh, making it accessible at the very least to to the population of whatever country and then also to how you take care of the most vulnerable within those within 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 a country so uh, you know we use the 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 perspective of aged care uh, people uh, elderly people but i also i also would consider 
um, encompassing people like the homeless, people like, um, you know, uh, uh, mentally ill, all those sorts of uh, uh, vulnerable groups of people that require assistance. And I mean, yeah, that seems to be pretty, uh, pretty appealing on all ends. Um, and so, and, uh, yeah. And once yeah. you start doing that and, and you reorient economy towards that, like, um, I, I don't remember what the number is, but you have like a vast majority of jobs that are considered bullshit mm. jobs. You know, yeah. they're, they're jobs that feel meaningless. They are meaningless. Um, but we're forced to do them anyway. Um, mm. and I, I, I think we can easily rededicate uh, a lot of our, uh, employment towards these kinds of services that do feel meaningful to people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is maybe <laughs> seems like a really strange example, but, um, I had a friend that visited Israel for a trip and, um, he found out about, and maybe this is not news, maybe it's just news to Nate, me, um, but he found out that there's a group of the population in Israel, I think like 7% or something, maybe it's not even that big, but a, a minority of the population that is selected to just study um, Judaism. They just study the Torah, uh, they just do research, and that's their job. Um, and it's sort of like a government-paid gig. And so, you know, to extrapolate from this idea, it would be cool if an economy and a government just said, you know what? We're going to fund research, lifelong research for like 5% of the population to research how we can make economies that are not growing, mm -hmm. um, you know, totally. sustainable for the, for the, uh, for the future in terms of ecologically, as well as from a well-being perspective, that'd be pretty cool, right? You just have paid mm -hmm. researchers that do this for their whole life. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would also say that, you know, the care economy that also includes the environment. So to, to be able to take care of our surroundings takes work. Like you can't just automate that either. You, you need to have um, mm. a, a workforce dedicated to, to assessing, um, you know, the environmental quality, assessing mm. the amount of biodiversity in the area, soil contamination, um, and, and doing something about it. Um, mm -hmm. And people, a lot of people say like, oh, well, you just want, this is another kind of degrowth um, criticism. You just want everyone to move back to rural areas <laughs> and do backbreaking yeah. work. And um, yeah. well, so this one um, uh, Dutch agronomist, he he actually did a calculation. Um, where What's he, his name, by the way? Uh, Mino Schmidt. Um, okay, his work cool. is in yeah, okay. Dutch, S-M-I-T-M-E-I-N-O is yep. his first name. Yep, yep. Um, he did a calculation looking at like, well, okay, so if we did um, restructure the agricultural system to be, you know, all uh, uh, agroecological so that it actually yeah. improves the environment instead of just extracting from it um, yeah. and still provide enough food to feed our country, um, he said it, we'd need twice as many people in agriculture. So like from, yeah. I think, 2% to... I think it was like four to five percent. That's actually mm. not that much if you think about how uh, uh, sixty years ago we had fifty percent in most in most um, yeah. first world right. countries living on mm. farms. It's it's actually quite reasonable. I, yeah. I think the same would be in in you know in the healthcare sector. Um, you mm. know, and instead where where a lot of our jobs are, you know, we work in advertising. Um, what 
you know, what a useless, <laughs> useless job. You're like moderating content on social media. Um, yeah. you're, uh, you know, boxing donuts. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's, uh, yeah. it's definitely possible and it's not as bad as people said, <laughs> a lot of people. Yeah. Threaten it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, definitely. No, I mean, look, I, the there's a study that comes to mind for me, which is uh, about actually. Let me pull up the quote that I found because this is uh, I thought was pretty interesting. So there's this phenomenon where you know wh- whenever you sort of come into some power of a, a position of influence, power, you can sort of have a stamp, you have your stamp on the world. You know, if you can write a book or like, um, actually, not writing books, not a very good example. Uh, being a manager at a place, being a leader. Um, all these sorts of things, uh, we have a sort of default to add. So we always want to see what what can we do to make this world a better place? What can we add? What policy can we add? Um, and the study basically found that uh, essentially, so they say here we show that people systematically default for searching for addictive transformations consequently overlooking subtractive transformations, which I think is super, super fascinating. And this idea of um, people always pursuing what we can add as opposed to what we can subtract. And in, in a sense, that's what, and the authors sort of conclude that um, uh, the, the, these defaults to adding constantly, or if we used to use a slightly different phrase to growing, so constantly growing other industries as opposed to subtracting, it leads to problems like bureaucracy, which is so true. But most importantly, what they note is uh, climate. Um, if you if we're not constantly evaluating what we can remove in terms of which make climate, ecology, well-being, all these things better, then uh, we'll be in a bit of trouble. Um, and I guess the last comment I'll have is in defense of advertisers. <laughs> I'm sure some of them do feel like their work is meaningful. Um and yet I think the fundamental question we have to pose is um, if the system that we're living in is consuming itself to a point where all in, it, 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 you know, the inevitable consequences that no industries will exist because there'll be no planet, we have to really consider, is it valuable to be doing what we're doing or should we be doing something else? Um, but yeah, David Graver's book is pretty um pretty funny <laughs> uh, it's sort of like a like a meta com- a comedy book um but yeah there's another critique i wanted to run by you um by a dutch economist and so i asked his name is jerome van der Berg, and he sort of argues that and maybe this is this is a familiar critique of uh, you'd be familiar with the critique but essentially he says because of the uh, the word degrowth um has so many sort of because it's so broad, it can often lead to confusion. It's a bit ambiguous. Uh, that's the first argument he makes. And then the second thing he make, he says is that in terms of combating climate change, it may not be the most effective strategy. So a more effective strategy may be just to mobilize working, uh, mobilize labor unions to sort of tackle, you know, uh, renewable energy sectors. And then that way, that's like a, we can see the direct result. You know, if we do this, then climate change will be better. Whereas degrowth, he argues, as I understand it, um, it's sort of, it may not get us to the solutions as quickly as we may need to ecologically. And so he argues essentially, instead of being degrowth or pro-growth, we should just be a growth. So being indifferent and viewing it as sort of like a, a, as a, as taking it out as a fundamental value from society. And that's it. 
Um, what do you think about that critique of being just neutral to growth um, and then just being growth positive in areas that we need to be and growth negative in areas we don't? Yeah, I, I think that's, um, he he brings up a lot of good points and I've, I've read his work and I've seen him actually debate with Hyogos uh, Kallis, who who's yeah. my mentor. And um, um, it was, it was very, a very spicy debate. Um, mm. And because uh, he's also at, in Barcelona, they they work in the same right. institution, so they've been having this debate yeah. for decades. Um, but before I respond to that, I I saw a headline um, a yeah, few yeah, weeks ago, ahead. and it kind of gets to what you were saying. Um, President Biden warns that the risk of nuclear Armageddon is at its highest point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Here are three mm. top stocks to consider if ten, if tensions keep rising. <laughs> <laughs> this this was from Yahoo News. Um, yeah. I just thought it was like the perfect encapsulation. It's like that cartoon where it was like, um, you know, we did this. It's like three businessmen mm. sitting around a campfire. We did destroy the environment, but for a while there, we we did um, get some nice stocks. Trade going. The line was going up. The line yeah. was going up. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's like, yeah, I just thought that was just so funny to read. Um, here are three top stocks uh, for Armageddon. Um, yeah. What are they? What are they? I didn't, I didn't dare <laughs> oh, to click. Oh, no. You're such a bad you'll have, you'll have to Google. <laughs> you'll have to Google it yourself. Um, <laughs> so, I, yeah, actually, I guess it was on Yahoo. Well, anyway. Um, so with, with Jeroen van den Berg, his, his critique, I mean, it goes back to what, uh, we were talking about before, which is, you know, growth as an ideology has become hegemonic. It's, it's something that has become the primary tool in the kind of mm. status quo toolbox to justify, um, the present. And, and you see that happening right now, you know, we have a, a looming recession and then um, politicians are saying, well, uh, the only way that uh, we're going to be able to get growth going again is by cutting public services it's in the United mm. Kingdom. It's it's just, you just see it, like the growth ideology rearing its head um, once mm. again, you know, in this moment of crisis, it's, um, it's just, they're going to eviscerate the national health service just, just because you know, they want to argue mm. that that's going to what allow the number to go up, which actually, well, anyway, it might not even mm. do that if you look yeah, at yeah. it from ev even a Keynesian economic perspective um, would argue otherwise. But mm. the fact is that growth is this kind of um, just, it's the main, one of the main ideologies to justify the status quo not only in, in first world countries, but also in uh, the global South, especially in the global South, where um, economic growth has always been imposed as the main reason why mm. countries um, should, um, should uh, accept international development, imposed the models imposed by the West. Um, and mm. to do that, they need to start pub cutting public services um, and uh, accepting loans, doing massive infrastructure projects for um, the sake of, of, you know, extracting more minerals for Western market. Um, mm. 
And this has all always been for the sake of growth. So, mm. but we say very on in the book, we say, uh, you, you can't address something by ignoring it. You have to, you have to face it frontally. You have to name the elephant in the room, which is this ideology. Um, we mm. can't just say we're, we're not going to care about growth. We're not going to, um, we're going to ignore it and just do other things mm -hmm. that we like because it's, it's the thing in the room that's, that's justifying every, um, all the decisions mm. politicians are making. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So you, in, now, in a sense you have to, yeah, you have to dethrone it before you can sort of yeah. be neutral to the topic, because if it's so entrenched in every area of life in every country, it's the global North, the South being neutral mm -hmm. to it in a sense is just, uh, waiting for, the same thing to happen because it's sort of a basic assumption. It's so fundamental yeah. to how we think about economics. Yeah. And then there's the other aspect of degrowth, which is, I think we're like, we're kind of okay with being the like annoying messengers that people don't like, but are forced to pay attention to, you know, it's like, mm. yeah, it's an annoying word. Mm. Right. Like, and, and so every time someone says the word, um, you know, you have some pundit that gets angry and writes a whole article about why it's wrong. Mm. Um, and then more people hear it. Um, and it's, it's kind of like, uh, it has this kind of little viral aspect to it just because it's so annoying and, and rubs some people the, the wrong way. And then there's a whole host of people like my friend Catherine who hear it and are like, that's it. We need an economy mm. not based on on productivity. We need an economy based on uh, uh, well-being and and mm. and uh, having meaningful lives. Um, and and people get that intuitively. I, I think also, um, you know, part of and we haven't talked about this at all today, but a really big part of degrowth is that kind of material aspect of of growth. We can see, and it's really easy to show this, is that GDP tracks really closely to mm -hmm. environmental impacts, and environmental impacts track really closely to um, increasing use of material and energy. It's just they're yeah. they're just you so can't decouple them. Yeah, and they're so closely coupled, and there are certain windows of time when they have become decoupled in some countries but there's no evidence that shows that globally which in a climate crisis that's the main issue that they have ever become decoupled um mm. at a fast enough rate that we need um so yeah. given that we're going to have to have an economy that um doesn't depend on economic growth to to meet people's well-being we need an economy mm. that yeah um puts it aside like you heard on the back says um mm. but that actively is restructured so it doesn't need it anymore um, yeah and then maybe maybe later on we might have a kind of growth and a way of measuring growth and progress that does increase and get better over time but today um it's just very easy to see Mm. Um, that that's um, that that's not it's just not adequate as a way to steer yeah. our um, steer our decision making as a society. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Um, 
and you know we've had research we had a, we had an Australian researcher that sort of did a, a study that you know went over the whole decoupling green green growth argument showed that it's not possible and I think Tim sort of said something to the same but it's good to reinforce the ideas that you know uh, you know even if you were you know even if you are anti degrowth at the very fundamental level you can't be pro growth and also be conscious of the environment you can't do that both um well and fantastic think, yeah. yeah 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 and i would also just say that like to matt huber's critique as well and and you're mm. on the back i think a lot of the critique there and it's a fair critique is just degrowth is bad messaging you know, it's a it's a message that no one wants to hear, and it's a PR problem. Maybe we do need the PR people. We yeah, <laughs> I mean, I often I often say, you know, there's that Allen Ginsberg line, like the best minds of my generation. Uh, I forget something something. I think the best minds of my generation are probably in PR right now, um, and we we do need them. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, that's not the point. The point of degrowth is. It's, we have an argument to make and yeah. uh, whatever you say and Jeroen van den Berg would agree I think Matt Huber avoids avoids actually talking about this in his work whatever um, whatever you think about whether degrowth sells as a concept or not we have a problem as a society that where economic growth is is highly coupled to environmental impacts and and we need to talk about that um, mm. And, and so we'd say in our book, degrowth, when it comes down to it, is it's the politicization of uh, mat a material aspects of the economy. It's the politicization yeah. of the metabolism of society. Um, that is now a political issue. And that's yeah. what degrowth is trying to do. Absolutely. Well, look, Aaron, I think we've come close to the end of the podcast. Um, and so just before we finish, I want to pose a question and sort of shoehorn my interest in the, in the film and the book Dune with your interest of sci-fi. Um, because I was, so, okay, so uh, for context, I'm not a very big literature fan, but my friend sort of encouraged me the past two years to read more. And I came across John Steinbeck, which you may be familiar with, but I absolutely fell in love. Like I read him in school. I was like, yeah, whatever. But I've sort of... Uh, uh, there's sort of an ecological presence in his books that for me resonates very deeply. Um, and then I was just thinking about Dune when I was preparing for this podcast. And, um, you know, Dune is a fundamentally ecological book. It's about posterity. And I think Fra Frank, Hub uh, Frank Herbert even says, you know, I have a deep passion for pos posterity, but unfortunately they don't vote something along those lines, which I think is very prescient um, for the looming sort of ecological crisis. But um as a final question, you know, um, uh, you know, degrowth, the dune, sci-fi, all these things. So basically, the the fundamental not tying these all together is that imagination is very important. And uh, if you don't have visionaries uh, in society, um, well, one it would be a very boring world, but two, it'd be hard to make progress because you're not uh, imagining what could be. Um, so I'm curious to know, using your sort of influences of sci-fi and your interest in sci-fi, what would your utopia look like? I think the the small 
problem to that question is, uh, <laughs> is, is that unfortunately most utopian sci-fi isn't very interesting because you need some kind of conflict to uh, yeah, drive, yeah, drive the narrative. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I think, you know, I think it's possible, you know, I, I guess these days we talk about like, um, you know, a, a zero carbon society or whatever. Um, but I, I think that like sets our sites too low. Um, mm. I think it's possible to have a society that not only doesn't have an impact on its surroundings, but actually mm. improves them. Um, that transforms the world into a, a a lush, flourishing, mutually beneficial place for for humans and animals and um, you know and ecosystems. Mm. And it, uh, like almost like a world that is permeable to life. Um, and mm. I think how capitalism kind of restructures the world is, is as a, as a world that is impermeable to different forms of life. Um, mm. and yeah, I think that's kind of what my utopia would look like is, is, is a world where everything we do is compatible, um, mm. and, and is able to be absorbed by our surroundings and we're able to make things better. Like, you know, we we can actually increase the amount of carbon um, being sequestered. Um, we can uh, uh, create a society where uh, people are uh, people can have leisure, leisure and meaningful work. Um, you know, it wouldn't just be a land of lazy slobs um, because, like, mm. work is something that we find meaning in and that we can uh, allows us to um live lives um you know going back to philosophy it allows us to live lives where we we can recognize um and fulfill our our um desire to transform our surroundings and ourselves mm. um mm. you know great Look, I think that was a pretty vivid picture, and I think I would uh, I would buy your sci-fi um, book if it, that was the beginning or end. I don't I would, don't know. I'd be interested where the conflict would be there, but um, but yeah, no. Um, thank you very much, Aaron, for uh, joining me on the podcast. Um, please stay with me just before we close. But um, uh, if people want to find your information, your book, your writing, um, where can they find you? Yep. Yeah. Um. Uh, and uh, so. Uh, unfortunately, Andrea is not. She's not on social media, but you can find Matthias and myself on on Twitter most actively. Um, and those are your co-authors. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, you can. And my my focus, I, I write mostly around ecological questions. Uh, I'm also involved with like um, housing activism, um, and then. Um, Increasingly, I'm moving towards uh, writing sci-fi, which is kind mm. of my main <laughs> busyness in my free time these days. Yeah. That's awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Aaron, and, uh, and uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Xavier. <laughs>